But as we get started, um, I want to ask you a question. And this is kind of going to set the tone or the theme for what we're going to be looking at here today. So if you had the power, if you somehow had the power to get rid of all the evil in the world, what would you do? What would you do with it? So imagine if you're a Marvel fan, you could just snap your finger, and in doing that, it's all gone. I used to think, like, if I had that opportunity, it's a no-brainer, right? Yeah, snap your fingers, be done with it, all the evil in the world is gone, moving on. Now, I'm not so sure. I'm a little bit less confident in that answer, Um, and hopefully by the end of this morning, we're going to see why, for example, I would say I'd have some hesitance in just kind of snapping my finger and saying, let's be done with all the evil in the world. So we're going to spend our time this morning looking at a story in the Bible where God actually almost did rid the world of all evil. And we're going to find that story in the account of Genesis. And it's found in chapter 6 through chapter 9. And and you're going to see um, in this story where it gives an account of Noah's life, kind of how God dealt with and and sets the tone for how he is dealing and will deal with evil. Um, So as we begin... One of the things I want to do is I want to highlight, like I did with the, the, the kids up here earlier, is we tend to, tend to read Jonah as a, as a moral hero story. And so Jonah, oftentimes, when it's read this way, he's the hero. He's the good guy who stands out from all the other evil men. And in the end of the story, this is why Jonah ends up being the one who saved with his family, and he's put on the boat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So if you're familiar with the story, maybe you've heard kind of something along those lines, or you've read it that way maybe yourself. And if that's the way you kind of read that story, then what ends up happening is Noah is the example for us to follow. He's the moral hero. We need to be like Jonah. And that's kind of the point that we take from it. But my hope is that this morning what we're going to see is that while Noah is an example of faith, so for example, if you read in the book of Hebrews, um, Hebrews uh, 11.7 says that Noah is one of the examples of faith or faithfulness that we have. Um, What we're going to see, though, that the moral hero reading of Noah is actually a distortion of what is actually taking place in that story. And the goal for us today is to see that Noah's story is really a story about humanity, which would include you and I, and ultimately a story about the mystery of God's mercy. So you ready to join with me? All right. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. Lord, I pray that you sustain my my voice. And Lord, I pray as well that uh, your word would ring true. Lord, I pray you'd give me the energy as well. And Father, more than anything else, I pray that our our hearts and our minds would receive your word. Lord, that you would encourage us. Lord, that you would challenge us. You would draw us nearer to yourself. And Lord, in doing so, that we would have a clearer picture of the mystery of your mercy. And it's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we get started, a little bit of backstory. I know... Most of us in here are probably very familiar with this story in the Old Testament. It's in the first couple chapters. But the book, the book of Genesis really describes kind of this precipitous downfall of humanity. You have, you have the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And then by the time you get to chapter 3, things take a turn. This is where you see Adam and Eve. And you have the first occurrence of sin. They disobey God. They take the fruit from the tree. And then moving forward from there, things kind of spiral out really fast. So within one generation, which is to say, by the time Noah and, uh, I'm sorry, not Noah, Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel, are walking around, what happens? You have the first what? Murder. Cain rises up and kills his own brother, Abel. And then from there, things get worse and worse. And so eventually, we end up in chapter 6. And in chapter 6 is where we're going to be picking it up today. And this is where we see the beginning of the story of Noah and, and his family. 
And so if you look with me in Genesis chapter 6, we're going to look, look at verses 1 through 7. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 7. So it tells us, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw <clears throat> that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So as we kind of jump into this text, there's two kind of opening comments I want to make just to kind of address certain things that, that kind of come forward in this text. So the first one is the, this notion of uh, the sons of God and the Nephilim. So that word Nephilim is a weird word. Um, if you want to think of it this way, it's oftentimes translated as giants. Um, and you see it come up a, just a, a handful of times, a few times in, in the scriptures. And then uh, there's two opinions on who the sons of God and the Nephilim are. And so opinion one is that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth. So after Cain murders Abel, Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And they would argue that the sons of God in this text are actually the descendants of Seth. And that the, the daughters of men, then, are the descendants of Cain. And what it's talking about is how the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain got together and they had children. And these were the Nephilim, men of renown or great men, men of, uh, if you want to think of uh, violence and, and war, so to speak. Um, so the second opinion is that the, the sons of God are actually referring to divine or angelic beings of some kind. And that what occurred in this, uh, what's being accounted for here, is that they somehow kind of left their proper place, they intermingle with the daughters of men, and their offspring end up being this weird kind of joint thing that are called the Nephilim. Um, personally, I tend towards the second opinion, that these are actually divine or angelic beings, and there's a few reasons for that. So the first would be that uh, Jude chapter, uh, sorry, Jude 6 and 7 actually highlight this. So you'll see this up on the screen. Um, it says, in the angels... Uh, the angels who did not stay within their proper or own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise engaged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, that word there is actually strange flesh. They pursued strange flesh. And if you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, what they actually try to do is to have sex with angels. Um... And they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude kind of touches on that. Secondly, um, one of the main objections that's raised, and it's really the only one to this way of reading it, is that Jesus states, for example, in Mark chapter 12, verse 25, that the angels are not given in marriage. But despite him saying they're not given in marriage, it doesn't indicate that they don't have, if you want to call it gender or sex, or that ability or capability. And then lastly... Um, the divine being or angelic interpretation was actually the dominant and accepted view for about two centuries on either side of when the church started. Um, so there's a, a pretty extensive study that was written. I'm not going to try to pronounce the guy's name, but I do have a quote here from him. 
He says, the angel's interpretation appears to be the earliest known explanation of the expression sons of God as it occurs in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. This mode of interpretation is demonstrably dominant from the second century BCE, so before Christ, until the second century CE or after Christ, as far as it can be discerned in the extent documents. So you can find quotes from the the, the early church fathers, you can find quotes leading into the the time of the New Testament period, and and what stands to be true is that while we moderns are very kind of a little bit offset or uncomfortable maybe with this way of thinking and reading this text, our ancient forebears were not, and that was the that was the, assum- the assumed and common reading of, of this text. Um, second thing I want to highlight. Um, the text here in verses 6 and 7 talks about how God regretted that he made man, said he was sorry that he had made them. Um, and this is what's called an anthropomorphism. And anthropomorphism is when you attribute human qualities to something. So an animal, an object, or even God himself. And where this is important is that we need to understand that the language that's being used here, this language of regret, God saying he was sorry that he had made man, is, is being kind of deployed in a figurative way. It's still conveying a truth, but we need to understand it's speaking figuratively of God. Here's what I mean. When we say that God is light, are we literally saying that God is light? No, there's a figurative use, an analogical use of that language. And so we're saying that God is light. So when it says that God is regretting what he did, we need to understand it's not like a, oops, I made a mistake, kind of like you and I would say. And here's where this is important. So God is eternal, right? He is, he is outside of time. So these events didn't catch him off guard. Does that make sense? It's not like God, this happened and God's like, didn't see it coming. And then secondly, he's all-knowing. He's omniscient. So because he's eternal and outside of time and he's all-knowing, he's not experiencing these events like you and I experience events. So it's not God making a mistake and going, oops, I didn't see this coming. And then secondly, um, he's what's called, uh, he has aseity. That's a weird theological term, but it means God is independent from the creation. He, he stands on his own. He is self, um, uh, self-supporting, if that's a way of thinking about it. Like he doesn't rely on anything outside of himself. And then sec- uh, the other thing that we would say is God is unchanging, or the term is immutable. Immutable. And, and what this basically means is that God's thoughts and actions are undetermined. Everything that God thinks and does is self-determined. Self-determined. You and I are not like this. We are dependent on things outside of ourselves, and when events occur, they affect us and shape us and mold us. That doesn't happen with God. Now, this may seem like a weird and aside, but the reason I wanted to highlight these things is that there are those who will point to a text like this, and they'll say that this is evidence or proof that God is not immutable. That God is changing. God is growing. Right? And there's certain, there's certain strains. Maybe you've heard of them. Um, one would be open, open theism is one. Process theology is another. And I just wanted to highlight that as we're looking at this text to help you guys understand. It's using this language figuratively. It's using this language figuratively. God is not up, up in heaven reigning over his creation going, oops, I didn't see that coming, and then adjusting and adapting his plan. It's, it's speaking to us in ways that we'll understand to make its point. All right, so... Hopefully I didn't lose you. I didn't want to get too far into the weeds on that, but, but it is a point of kind of interpretive contention. So, all right, main point. Here we go. Ready? The main point in this text that it's conveying to us is that God has decided to rid the world of evil by ridding the world of humanity. And now you're like, it! why did I come to church today? This is not what I wanted to hear. It's raining outside. It's cloudy. And this guy's going to talk to me about how God wants to wipe us out. You're welcome, right? 
So why? Why did God declare that this is what he's going to do? Well, we see it in verse 5. It says that the heart of man and women, all of us, was what? Only on evil continually. It's, it's describing to us what theologians call the depravity of man. And basically what that's stating is that because of sin, ever since Adam and Eve, something in us is broken. It's broken. We've got this, if you want to think of it as, as, a, as a disease, that just doesn't go away. And everything about us, everything about us, our very being, our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, all of those have become twisted and distorted in ways that we can't fix or escape. Our thoughts, our desires, our very hearts are set on evil continually from the time of our youth. And uh, <coughs> this part of the story where God declares what he's going to do and he's going he's to blot man out, he's going to wipe man out, is usually what elicits a very strong reaction from people. Um, and at this point, you're either in agreement with God. You might say, okay, I, I, I'm tracking with you, Charlie. I affirm what you're saying, that, that there's something broken in us, etc. Um, or you might disagree. You might say, well, this seems like a bit of an overreaction, let's say, on God's part. Um, and, and some will even scoff at this story, for example, and they'll accuse God of being some sort of moral monster for, for wanting and desiring to wipe mankind out because of the evil that's taking place. Um, oddly enough, though, the same people who oftentimes will say that God is wrong to do this and he's some sort of moral monster are also the ones that will complain that God, if he's there, hasn't done anything about evil. And you can find this if you've ever heard of a guy named Sam Harris. He wrote a book called um, Letter to a Christian Nation, and he actually presents this. He argues that the, the scriptures and God are not a good example for us to find, let's say, moral guidance because of stories like Genesis where God wipes humanity out. And he says that was wrong. Yet at the same time, he'll say, well, if there really was a God, then God would get rid of evil. Now, it's kind of strange because the one story in the Bible where God actually almost gets rid of evil, they then take issue with and point out and see, ha, see, God's a moral monster. So maybe the problem isn't with God. Maybe the problem is not with the story. Maybe the problem is actually with where? Us. And that's, that's kind of one of the things that this text, this, this story of Noah is trying to get across to us. The problem is not with God, but it's with us. You see, evil doesn't exist as some kind of abstract, floaty thing out there in, in, in existence. Where does evil exist? In us. In our hearts. In our thinking. And in our will. And in our desires. Because of sin. We're the monsters. We're the ones who are guilty. We're guilty of committing crimes against God, against each other, and against the creation. And we're not used to thinking of ourselves in this way. And, 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 and this is where the story can become somewhat, let's say, challenging or offensive. But let me, let me ask you guys this. Have you ever um, read or at least seen the movies, The Lord of the Rings? Any fans? Fellow nerds? Like, I actually read The Cimmerillion. That's, that's how much I got into it, right? But when you watch that movie... Um, and, I, and I think the movie portrays it really well. And, and, the, and the war breaks out, let's say, right? And, and, and the heroes of the story, right? They're slaughtering the orcs. There's no one in the crowd watching that movie going, man, that seems really wrong. No one's lamenting the destruction of the orcs. No one's going, I feel really bad for them when they're put to the sword, are we? Why? Because they're the villains. They're the bad guys. Guess what? We're the orcs. Like, we're the orcs in the story. And it's so hard for us to grasp. And, and it grates against us. But the reason it grates against us is because of our sin and our pride. We want to exalt ourselves and diminish God. But we're the orcs. 
And the thing of it is, is for God to get rid of all the evil, that meant get rid of what? Us. Get rid of us. And he almost does that here. He almost does this. But what happens? Look with me at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah finds grace. Noah is shown grace. Noah finds favor in the eyes of God. And it's important you don't read past this verse if you're reading through the story of Noah without pausing and, and, and taking, taking a moment to consider what, what's happening here. Um, <clears throat> because if you, if you kind of skip past this verse, verse 8, right, where it talks about Noah finding favor in the eyes of the Lord, what tends to happen is you misunderstand what follows. And it's critical to understand that everything that follows from this, this declaration that Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, everything that follows is, is kind of predicated or built upon this declaration of Noah finding favor. And for example, the tendency is to skip over this to verses 9 and 10 and look at what it says in verses 9 and 10 is the reason God saves Noah. So look with me. Verse 9 and 10, it says, These are the generations of Noah. He was a righteous or just man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I always find the names interesting. Ham? Like, Anyway, that's just me. Sorry, brain fart. Anyway, so because of God's grace, what we're seeing in verses 9 and 10 is an outworking of this. And what we tend to do is skip over it. He was righteous. He was declared just just and blameless in his generation and, and that he walks with God um, because God found favor with him. It's not that he finds favor because he's these things. It's that he ends up being declared these things because he has found favor with God. And we have to keep those things in order. Um, and it's critical to see that these things that, that, that it's describing here about him being righteous and walking with God are a result, a consequence of God's choice or favor on him and not, um, not rather that he's, he finds favor because he's righteous and he's walking with the Lord. Now, at this point, you might be like, I don't know if I buy what you're selling because it doesn't seem to be what the text is, is saying. So I'm going to ask you, like, just take a pen. We're going to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that here in a few moments. And I'm going to show you from within, this, within the story of Noah itself that that's actually what's taking place. So just kind of make a memory. We're going to put a pin in that. And we're going to come back to it in a little bit. But at this point in the story, and we're just going to kind of summarize it because it's, it's a pretty, pretty extensive uh, section of text. God calls Noah and gives him some instructions. And if you're familiar with the story, what happens? He says, hey, Noah, here's what I'm going to do. I want you to go and build a boat build a giant boat out of wood, and we're going to bring the animals in, etc., etc. But then God also declares to Noah that he's establishing a covenant, a promise, right, with him. And we see this in uh, verse 18. And it says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, with you. And then we come to everyone's um, favorite children's Bible story, right? And this is what we see in, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. The animals are gathered together, they get on the boat, and they set sail on a wonderful pleasure cruise. And it's oftentimes presented like this, good time knowing the smiley animals. And uh, it's strange, and, and here, here, I remember I was a youth pastor in Tennessee, and the students in my youth ministry would oftentimes work as volunteers for like the uh, uh, children's uh, Bible, what do they call those things, uh, Bible camp, Right? And so one of, one, of my one of my students, she, 
she, after the, after the day, uh, comes back and we have kind of a regroup meeting and she's like, so I got to tell you what happened during, during the Bible time. I was like, yeah, come on. So she says, so we finished the story of Noah. You know, we finish and da-da-da-da and, and I tell him all the stuff that happens and we get to the end and then she's like, she's like, okay, cool, any questions? And she's like, one kid's hand goes up. She looks at him and she says, hey, what's your question? And the kid goes, what happened to all the other people? And, uh, and I was like, oh, and I start laughing. I was like, well, what'd you do? She's like, I changed the subject. I was like, what do you mean you changed the subject? She's like, hey, it's time to go out in the playground. It's time for free time. And she, I said, you didn't give him an answer? She's like, no, I didn't want to say. And I was like, well, that's fair. I was like, because it's, it's kind of uh, abrupt to go, hey, well, boys and girls, gather around for the story of everybody else. And you end up with something like this picture. And we're going to call this one, enjoy your swim, Noah. Because this is actually kind of more representative of what's happening. I mean, maybe you could say the guy down there on the left, he's waving by. And, and the girl there, she's not crying out in terror. She's actually laughing at a joke the guy in front of her is telling, telling her, right? And so that would make a rather abrupt shift to go from, you know, good time Noah and the smiley animals to enjoy your swim, Noah. And, it, and this one hits a little different, doesn't it? This, this way of viewing what's actually taking place hits a little different. And the truth of it is, is this is actually how the story should hit us. Because this is actually what's happening. And there's a certain amount of like, oh my God, like this is terrible. And we should feel that. We should feel the weight of that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't try to sanitize and sanitize a story and sand off the rough edges. Because when we sanitize it and we sand off all these rough edges, we actually obscure the profoundest truth of all that this story is conveying to us. And so you, you, if you have any knowledge of history, any self-awareness, right, um, any, any sense of the way things are in the world, the, the thing about the story of Noah that's not shocking is actually that God would wipe humanity out. I mean, just think about history. Think about the, the, the atrocities and the horrible things that we've done to each other throughout our history on this planet. Um, just as Abel's blood cried out to God when, when he murdered Cain, I'm sorry, it, when Cain murdered him, there is a literal ocean of blood crying out to God for justice because of our own atrocities and the things, and just the vile and wicked things that we've done. And right now, I know there's somebody here going, dude, chill out. Like, I've never killed anybody. I'm not that bad. So I, I would say you're actually uh, deceiving yourself, and I'll prove it to you. Right now, simple, simple little analogy. So if I came to you and I said, hey, I've got this great business idea. Here's what it is. I've developed this technology, and it reads our thoughts and our, and, and our emotions and what we're thinking and we're feeling. And then it transmits those thoughts and feelings to a shirt that then broadcasts everything that you're thinking and feeling so that everyone around you can see what you're thinking and feeling. It'll show words or images or various other things and I think this is a great business idea. So I'm asking for you to, to help me in two ways. One, I want you to wear the shirt so that everyone can see how it works. And I want you to give me some money to help this thing take off. How many of you in here are going to sign up for that deal? No way! You're like, I am not wearing that shirt. I'm not investing any money in that because nobody else is going to wear that shirt. Why? Why? Because you know what's in your heart. 
And the idea that everybody else might be able to see what you're thinking or what you're feeling would bring what? Terror and trepidation to you because they would actually see who you are. And if you know who you are and you have a good sense of history, then the shocking thing in this story is not that God would decide to wipe humanity out. Because you have an honest, if you have an honest assessment of yourself, you realize, I deserve to be taken a swim to. So that's not the shocking point of the story. What stands out in the story is not the flood, but the mystery of God's mercy to Noah. The mystery of God's mercy. So we're going to jump ahead to the end of the flood. Kind of narrative so we can kind of see this more clearly. So look with me at Genesis 8, beginning in verse 20. We're going to read 8, chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, and then we're going to skip ahead to Genesis uh, 9 and look at verses 8 through 11. So the flood subsides. It's ended. And then in verse 20, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered a burnt offering on the altar. So he's now responding in worship and praise to God. And he's offering an offering. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then in Romans 9, verses 8 through 11, it says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. You see, the, the mystery here is that God shows mercy to, to, to Noah. And remember when I said we're going to put a pin in that idea, that, that this idea that uh, Noah finding favor is the reason he's preserved. Not because Noah is necessarily any different than anybody else. And here's where this comes through. Look at verse 21. What does God declare? He says he won't curse the ground again because man's heart is evil from the time of his youth. So here's what I want you to see. Who's he talking about? What men, what woman is God referencing at this point? Noah and his family. Why do we know it's Noah and his family? Where's everybody else? They're taking a swim, right? So the only people left are Noah and his sons and their wives and their children. And God says, I will never again curse the ground because men's heart is set on wickedness from the time of his youth. You see, God's promise to Noah isn't because Noah was any better. God didn't save Noah because Noah was righteous and walking with God. Noah was just as wicked as everyone else who perished. Noah found favor. Why did Noah find favor? Because that's who God chose to show his favor to. But the mystery here is that Noah found favor. That's what's mysterious about the story. Not that the flood came, but that God chose to save anyone. Why did God choose to save Noah? Because that's who God chose. That's the mystery. That's the mystery of God's mercy. Judgment makes sense, but grace and mercy, that doesn't make sense. You see, Noah's story isn't a hero's story where he's distinct and set apart from all the other wicked men. 
Noah's story is a wicked man who gets saved. And in the end, Noah's story and the mystery of God's mercy is, is, is ultimately our story. See, Noah, just like everybody else, deserved to get washed away. But he found favor in God's sight. Noah was, was shown mercy. Noah is not the hero. He's a sinner like you and I. His heart was just like ours. His heart was just like all the others who perished. Um, <coughs> that God would, would judge us and wipe us out, that's not shocking. That makes sense. But that Noah would find mercy, that you or I would receive mercy. You see, that's the mystery. That, that's the real question mark in this story. Why did God choose to show mercy? Why did God choose to show grace? And just as Noah deserved to get washed away in a flood of judgment, the truth is, is so do you and I. We don't like to think about these things. They're uncomfortable. They don't sit easily on our conscience. But at the end of the day, that's the story. You see, and, and, it, and God basically sent an ark to carry Noah through the floods of judgment. And for us, we would say God sent his son to carry us through the floods of judgment. And in the story of Noah, the ark is really pointing forward to ultimately what God would accomplish for his people through his son, Jesus. And so just as Noah was carried through a flood of judgment, we too are carried through a flood of judgment. And so we would say that the story of Noah is really the story of every disciple of Jesus Christ. And so the offer that's given is instead of receiving, let's say, the floods of judgment, we can receive mercy and grace through repentance and faith and baptism. And there's a text, for example, in Peter that actually ties these two things together talks about how there was the flood and passing through the flood and, and how we participate in that in Christ, but we are baptized now. And that's what baptism signals, that we're in Christ, that the, the judgment waters, the flood has passed over us. Right? Because who, who took the flood of judgment for us? Jesus as our substitute. And so the story of, of Noah is really the story of how we are all undeserving sinners who, found, who have found mercy before the Lord. We have found mercy grace. We have been shown a grace and a mercy we don't deserve. And so if, if that's you here this morning, I would say rejoice and marvel at the mystery of God's mercy to you. But if you've never crossed that line, if you've never made a decision, let's say, to trust in Christ and place your faith in him, believing that he lived and died and rose again for your sins so that you might be forgiven and reconciled to God, please understand there is still a flood of judgment coming. There's still a flood of judgment. And either you're, you're in the ark, you're in Christ, passing through the floods, and they're passing over you, or you receive that upon yourself. And God doesn't need some fancy shirt that reveals your thoughts. He doesn't need, need some kind of imaginary technology to know what's in your heart. You're, you're laid bare before God like an open book. Like his eyes literally see into your very soul. He knows who you are. I mean, I remember one time having a conversation with a friend of mine, and we were talking about these kinds of things, and, and he says, you know, at the end of the day, he's like, I know God knows my heart. And I'm like, that's a terrifying thing. Like, you think that's some indication of God's going to judge you differently. It's like, you don't understand. Like, your own conscience will stand in judgment over you when you stand before God. But the thing that, that this story compels us to see is not that the, there is a flood of judgment, but rather this mystery of mercy. And there's mercy and forgiveness in the eyes of the Lord if you would turn to him and call to him in faith and humble yourself before him instead of running and spurning your maker. He calls you to stop running and to turn. And my hope is that you, like any one of us, that all of us would be captivated by the mystery of God's mercy. That the story of Noah is our story. 
that there is a judgment that we deserve because we are all sinners, undeserving of God's love, undeserving of God's embrace, undeserving of God's goodness and glory. But that God, being who he is, has chosen to show us mercy and grace and to save us. And so I open with a question, what would you do if you had the power to get rid of evil? And this is why I'm no longer so certain of my answer. Like, yeah, I'd snap my fingers and be done with it. Because that would mean I, I would have to wipe myself out and us as well. But God chose a different path. He chose the path of redemption and restoration. He chose the path of healing. And he started with one man and his family, and he carried them through a flood. And then the mercy shown to Noah now extends to all and any who will profess faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would flood our hearts with your mercy and your grace. Lord, we ask that you might reveal yourself to us, that we might revel and rest and rejoice in the mystery of your mercy. Father, I pray that if our sense of your love for us, that our appreciation for your grace, that our um, sense of joy in you has diminished, that you, would, that you would instill in us today just a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving, that you would, that you would enliven our hearts. Lord, if there's any of us in here who are uncertain about our standing with you, if we've never made a profession of faith and, and, and sought to trust in you and in your mercy and in your grace through your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, I ask that you would, by your spirit, compel us to take a step of faith today. If there's questions that we have to ask, Lord, I pray that we'd ask them. But Lord, more than anything else, Lord, that you would lead us to humble ourselves before you and find mercy and grace. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you this morning. We thank you for the story of Noah. We thank you for showing us through this story that it is our story. And Lord, that rather than choosing to rid the world of evil, which would mean ridding the world of us, you chose to get involved, you chose to show mercy and grace, and that the mystery of that story is not that you would wipe us out, but that you would show us mercy. So Father, may we turn to you and draw near to you, and it's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.